I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertained. Okay, Ranch Investor Podcast. Jumping right in. Sage Askin and I just got back from lunch. What did we cover at lunch or in the last episode? <laughs> well, you uh, asked me to share my story and get going, you know, and how we how we were able to start our ranching business, essentially. And uh, over lunch, we I was picking your brain about real estate because it's a it's a thing that interests me. I obviously have a fondness for land, and so I appreciate all your insight there. Coulter. Well, <clears throat> we're here to talk about you, Sage. So this was started with bootstrapping, how to create something from nothing. For all the people who say, don't pencil. <laughs> how are you making it pencil? You bet. Um, I like to watch the relationship between what you've got to pay for the land, let's say at its most basic level, and what you could get by running somebody else's critters on the land. So at its most basic if that pencils, and hopefully at a ratio that's 1.2, and I really like to see them 1.5 to 1, meaning you can your inflow, your revenue for custom grazing at conventional stocking rates, knowing nothing else about it, will exceed what you have to pay for at 1.5 to 1, then it's a pretty good idea that thing's going to work. And then you start doing little extra stuff. So for the young aspiring person, maybe they can buy 20 cows. That's a different question. And it probably has a different answer. I don't think they need to rush into livestock ownership. But if if they can, um, then and if and I like the gross margin analysis, the gross margin per SAU is what we use a lot. And that's the next best thing to, to looking at that. So if your gross margin per SAU exceeds for livestock ownership, what you could um, for the custom grazing, that's when you should start answering the question of, yeah, I'll invest in that. Because when you're starting out, the first 10 years are awful rocky, as you know, Coulter, especially with cash flow. And so you have to have something that cash flows. And that's what custom grazing does really well. Once that's been answered, you can start investing into livestock. And I would say keep that cyclical and make sure you're on the right end of things on the, on the cattle cycle, the sheep cycle, other things like that. And those aren't that hard to pin down when you're headed up or headed down. So now you've got me on <clears throat> SAU. Yeah. What, what is SAU? SAU means standard animal unit. So the the Western term for it would be an AUM. So I should have used that as a okay. term. So gross margin per AUM. Okay. Yep. So now you're, you're analyzing these different enterprises and animals and you're looking for synergies. Can you run one sheep per cow and not lose capacity in your experience? If you have, if it's not a strict grassland, if it, it if it's uh, has a forb component and a browse component for winter range, you can run one for one. That old school rule of thumb is a really good thing we've used. I almost always would try to scale that up because, for example, 300 cow ranch, well, you don't really want 300 sheep. That's not a very good scale. You want to take, because if you have... 50 sheep or less, you can kind of care for them in your spare time or your your family can maybe care for them. A farm flock, I'd call that. There's nothing wrong with the farm flock. They can be remarkably prolific and remarkably profitable. But 
If you're going to take that to scale, you need to be thinking about three loads. So maybe 900 U's, three, three, you know, to 900 to 1050. And that would be what I'd call a, a band or, or, or a, a regular size range flock. And, uh, then, and that's based off a labor unit. And if you're going to do that, then your 300 cow ranch needs to actually convert a hundred of those AUMs over to sheep units at a conversion of five to six to one for the old school range U 170 pound Montana Targi, you know, up here, or for our little hair sheep, it's more like 10 to one. And that's why we're attracted to them. So, well, before we get into hair sheep, now these numbers you're, you're working with out in the arid West. So, yes. So the 300 cow, 300 sheep doesn't work for you in Wyoming and Montana. <clears throat> I would imagine that that would work just fine in Arkansas, though. You have smaller pastures. Totally. I, well, I think scale's scale. And I think in labor units, that's what drives scale for us, um, Coulter. So, so if you have 300 sheep, that's about enough where you have to have a at least a pretty consistent part-time laborer. But I would agree if you're able to get to where the advantage is, you're getting instant gratification ecologically, production, right? From moving like net fence, then then you can make it work with two or 300 ewes and, uh, you know, 100 cows in Arkansas. I think there's awesome, probably really good land values relative to production in the Southeast, right? Well, yeah, you're, you're dealing with labor units. Um, I think that's obviously that's your threshold of fixed cost and overhead you have to optimize. So out here you're dealing with miles of fence and your land base is measured in sections. Yep. In Arkansas, it's measured in acres and you're not dealing with miles of fence. So I would, I would think I haven't looked into it for Arkansas, but I would think you could be far more profitable uh, with the 300, 300 place in Arkansas than in Wyoming. Because uh, yes. again, Sage, you're going to be driving two hours to get yep. to your lease pasture where in Arkansas, you can find a 300 head place just down the road. There's, yep. there's one acre per animal unit. Totally. Totally. So why not goats? Uh, I stopped at one of your leases in South Central Wyoming a few years ago and you had a couple of bands of goats. Yep. What happened there? That seems like another synergy. We talked about one U per cow without losing capacity. I mean, I would think you could do two goats per cow and lose no capacity. Exactly. You don't, we found a great deal, uh, very little overlap between cattle and goats. The ranches we've run goats on, um, we're very happy with the utilization. The sheep are much more competitive. If, if you go over the one-to-one, -one, you're competing with forage. And then it just is a math problem, whether it's more profitable or not. And that's the way it needs to be. Goats are awesome. Um, the, the only downfall to goats is they're a little higher stress animal and they're harder to winter. So here we are, you and I both have our hearts set in the mountain West, or I know I do. And, uh, dang it, goats don't do that well here in the winter. The, the most economical thing on that is certainly to pour some feed into them to keep them going and thrifty and alive and breeding over the winter time. Um, stalker goat thing might seem attractive. I think it's more attractive if you move them to another state completely at a lower elevation to winter, and then you move them all back to the mountain West to summer, the, and then, and then that's adding in a pretty, pretty extensive direct cost that might steer a person away from it. I know you've looked into extensively. Do you bring in <clears throat> meat goats from Texas 
and how many trucks, how many, how many, uh, flocks can you get put together with a bunch of ragtag goats and what kind of problems, disease management that's going to bring in. Do you run nannies and have a closed herd? And then you're talking about winter labor, winter feed costs to keep that nanny flock going. You've, you've split that one, that hair, you've skinned that cat every way it can. Is the only way to be profitable with goats in the arid west, the mountain west, is to get paid for your grazing? Yeah, you're on the dot. I, I'm not sure that that's the only way to be profitable. But as in the short term, like say the, the next year, I, I think I think that's the only way to be profitable consistently. But I would say that if you're willing to dig in and get like your locally adapted goat herd, and it's and like any genetics, it's going to take five. 10 years, I think you can be profitable after that point forward. Very profitable with that set of animals. They'll acclimate and they'll do well. And there's hardy breeds of goats like Spanish are, are very hardy. And I think they can acclimate very well in the Mountain West. Um, we, we, we found initially we could make the numbers work on paper with stalker goats, buying in the spring, selling in the fall. But it was scary. And when you put in all the production risk, the death loss, the stress of moving them, the predation, things like that. When all that st stuff came to bear on the actual reality of the situation, buying in a high market, which is reliably in the spring and selling in a low market reliably in the fall made us annualize that. There was no way to do it seasonally without moving ranges, you know, or something completely. So if a person's in the mountain West and they're looking at doing goats, my advice would be, you've got to annualize it in some manner if you're going to stick with it. And that led us naturally to production nannies, you know, and then the next part of it, you just can't starve them. You've got to feed them in the wintertime to get them to breed. And that's okay. If you're willing to have inputs of over a hundred dollars a head, I think you can have a pretty productive, you know, nice goat herd. Um, but in the, most people know, that I know of willing to do it, um, have, including myself, have not had the cash to take that two or three years, five years of genetic, you know, adaption where things might not cash flow, um, or or maybe they just break even. And one thing I will say that's nice about goats that would make it attractive, but you can't ever plan on this, is a lack of volatility in the markets. The goat market is just consistently great, and and the sheep market last year to this year, we're talking a hundred percent declines in prices at the same point in time. And that only happened since about June. I mean, it's been a rapid descent. The goat market hasn't really moved. It's its own thing. It's very niche, um, very ethnic, you know, where those animals go. And it seems to be very low correlation to any sort of commoditization. And the hair sheep are somewhat insular. We like them. They're kind of in the middle between conventional sheep and uh, the goat market, but they, they do move, you know, and so we've seen them come down with the commodity lamb market. All right, before we jump into hair sheep, yep. let's stick on goats. Yep. Because I love goats. Yep, yep. Um, it also seems like you would need a static land base. Yep. If you're gonna if you're gonna be cash strapped for three years, you're gonna cull heavily. Yes. You're gonna be looking for a composite of Kikos, Spanish, Nubians, whatever the composite is that's gonna be best acclimated and suited to your climate. You want that closed herd that's been developed over five, seven years. You have to, you can't be a lessee. You no. can't, you can't be a liquid mobile 
low risk other people's assets operator, can you? No, and then the other thing is if you do some targeted grazing, so the, so the natural shortcut, like you said earlier, alluded to, is to do some targeted grazing of some nature. And there's different types of that. There's very intensive, that's the high dollar stuff. In California, they're getting $1,500 an acre. You know, that looks awesome. That does not, that's on opposite ends of a teeter-totter with production. So you can do targeted grazing. You don't get great kid crops and vice versa. You might be making money at the bank, no problem, but your animals might look terrible some parts of the year, you know, and you have to be very flexible. The targeted grazing deal would be similar to direct marketing. So what I think would be a low level deal would be more of an extensive targeted grazing where you're working on expansive landscapes on like collectively Canada thistle. You're not making the dollars per acre, you're getting paid just for the project, you know, over five years. And that would give you seasonal grazing that you're getting paid to utilize. And I think if you could invoke one to two months of seasonal grazing, having done the math quite a bit, I can kind of pin that down. If you just add one month, 30 days of targeted grazing at 10 cents a day, you know, you're adding third, you know, $3 to the, to the top side. It doesn't take much on a goat herd for that thing to flip into positive territory and be really reliable while you're building your herd on the side. And if you can roll that into two or three projects that get you say through the summer where you're getting paid rather than paying or for free, um, which would be the other two scenarios, you're getting paid to graze during the summer. I think that can be a pretty profitable deal while you build a goat herd. And then you start working on the ethnic marketing of the of the lamb, or I'm sorry, the kid carcasses um, on the side. And I think that thing can work. Unfortunately, you need a you need a metro area to market carcasses. I would think Montana probably has some opportunity for that. More than more than maybe you know, I don't I don't know. Oh, I don't think I don't think there's a lot of demand for goat meat around here. You gotta get closer to Seattle, Denver, yep. Minneapolis, Salt Lake. Sure. So let's get into the hair sheep. What are they? Yep. Hair sheep would be the progenitors of all sheep. If you really think about it, think about all of our wild populations of sheep. They don't have fine wool. That was something that was bred into them. Um, uh, we like the hair sheep for a couple reasons. They're, they have one purpose and that's meat. And that allows you to be very focused with them. You're not splitting your time trying to get a great wool crop and trying to get a good meat crop. The dual purpose uh, is attractive. But uh, the main reason that led us to it is the wool crop is so fickle and so volatile. You can go three or four or five years without being able to sell that crop. Well, I, I can't warehouse wool for five years or pay a warehouse to warehouse it for five years or even, even one year. I need, if I'm going to produce something, put money into them, good alfalfa hay to produce a good wool crop in March, I dang sure need to sell that in the same year. You just can't be a startup rancher and do that. So the hair sheep, uh, very well produce about a 70 pound lamb in the same year as he was born that you can sell. And that's the cool thing. Turnover is fantastic. Um, and our real, we're, we're pretty well known for having, uh, the mountain West largest and, and probably best, you know, herd of Dorper influenced hair sheep. And so we sell a lot of breed stock. We sell Rams year round and we sell you lambs to different producers across the nation. And a lot of people we sell ewe lambs to will buy back all their lambs from them and then uh, package them and put them internal. And we've had a closed hair sheep 
herd for about three years now. And then we have some that we market on the side and they're not closed. They're in and out. They're on totally different ranches. So that's kind of what we're operating. Where do, where do Dorpers originate from? They're from South Africa. They're a Dorset and a Persian blackhead put together. And the, the Persian, the Persian is a uh, fat rump sheep. It's like a whole nother, it's like almost as distant as uh, Boss Indicus from Boss Taurus cattle. Huh. You know, the fat rump sheep are a whole different deal. They look different. They feel different. A lot of people think they're goats. I've, I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, your goats are out. And I'm like, well, you mean my sheep, but yep. <laughs> so, so how does this fit the principle of match your animal to your climate, yeah. to your natural resource? To the resource, yeah. So just think short grass. That's where we're operating. Short animals. I mean, it's pretty It's pretty simple. Also, a little more forb component. Um, they utilize the forbs. Uh that it's it's much better for most of the mountain west the sheep would be very naturally adapted and cattle are think about medicine bow you talked about that on the last podcast colter medicine bow is very tough for a cow to make a living there although they can do very well we could we can do way better with sheep medicine bow is probably not cow calf country for your 1300 pound black angus right right so what kind of cattle are you selectively breeding for? What kind of composites? How do you match your cow to your resource? Right. So the cows for us are very much, and this is an alienation thing, a cleanup type animal, to be honest with you. And we're trying to make that profitable. So if we can't run a stalker calf there, there's too much variability and gain or inconsistency. And if we can't run a sheep there because of federal lands, ownership, stuff like that, we will run a cow there. Um, it's strictly, again, it's a math problem. It's dollars and cents. Then the cows can be very profitable. We are terminal. And the Burke Tiger was very instrumental in, in advising us to do that. I have the same fondness as a lot of people. I wanted to make heifers and breed them. We breed heifers. They're totally different than our raised heifers a lot of times. We'll breed a few that we raise. But uh, our calf crop this year, we got Sim Angus bulls and we're terminal. And those calves go away. And other calves might get brought in and developed, you know, so it's kind of a different deal. Uh, we're producing a 410 pound, like mostly Angus calf that we sell off the cow's side in the fall. So it's just a very efficient, lightweight, you know, that's May 10th start of our calving season. So average birth date might be uh, 25th of May. And those are a hot commodity for November delivery. And that's what we produce. Are you doing any um, further marketing with NHTC, GAP, GAP5, uh, Agent Source Verified? What are you doing for value-added marketing? That's a great question. We're not doing any of that. We're doing as little as possible from an input perspective. I think that those programs are great. But I, again, what you said earlier is very important. We don't know where our land base is going to be. We have long-term leases, but they're not owned. Like like, And so... For us to develop a genetics program is much easier with sheep because they can acclimate better and we can keep them within the realm of where they are regionally. Cattle, I think we would be starting over at every five years trying to get another locally adapted herd. Basically, we don't get paid for cattle for making cattle genetics uh, from a cow-calf all the way down the chain. So um yeah we're just not doing any of those others either because nhtc to gather the value in a terminal program like we have the inputs might i'm not saying always 
for the way I pencil it, they might exceed the output on a 10-year trajectory in our program. So we're we're better off to do as minimal as possible and then start adding them back as we get paid two or three to one. Um, some, an example of that, we were selling calves that were all natural and then they only had branding shots. And we did add back in a preconditioning shot because I believe I was getting paid for that about two to one. Um, I can tell you last year, I got paid on my heifer calves. I netted about $80. Um, on them for doing that. I did not get paid on my steer calves last year. So so these sort of inputs often lead you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And that's just a real side deal on the life. The life's getting good at owning livestock. There's a lot of things there and, 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 and you can make it up in marketing. But another thing that NHTC I would say is a big weakness or are all branded programs is it locks you into a set number of cows. And it locks you to meet your contract obligations. And it locks you into a set like program. And you're sitting there with a, well, a program implies a lack of liquidity. And that's a very easy way to put that. So in ranching for profit terms, lack of turnover. And so if we're in a program, we're suddenly, we don't have any other options. That's the, their end product. But if we're out of the program, we have many options. The sky's the limit, you know, because I want to be able to sell a pair when if if the market's telling me to sell a pair in in June, I dang sure want to be able to sell those pairs in June. So, well, doesn't the market tell you to sell your best cow every year? Yeah. So no, the market tells you to sell your most overvalued cow every year, and and those could be the same thing for me. They are. Yeah, that's my best cow. Uh, a bred four year old. Um, it can change if you're gonna fall. I think for a lot of people that are in that have a one ranch okay and i think they could really value from like wally olson he's well known he he more or less did pioneer the idea of the actually a five-year-old cow program and out west that's been maybe a little younger because our cows don't last as long but um it's the pyramidal cow idea um unfortunately out west a lot of people if you're going to make that work you have to develop your heifers so cheap that most people won't do it you know, most people can't stand to see a 42% breed up on their heifers. It just kills them mentally. Um, I think that's a very profitable operation. If you can destock enough to run over all those heifers as yearlings with your cow herd and run them over and reliably every year sell them 10 years out of 10, I think those operators um, can probably buy ranches. I think that thing works good enough. It's basically, that is sell by principles, simplified and not selling undervalued animals. That's all you're doing. Um, and another component of that that makes sense is re-exposing your opens for a fall calf. If you set that out as an enterprise, it'll shock you how good of an enterprise that is. Now, not every year in 10. This year was a tough year with the drought region-wide, nationwide. It was pretty tough to sell a fall-bred cow. There really wasn't a good time to sell her. But I would say 10 years you know, down the road, a person would be glad they re-exposed those cows. So... Well, Sage, you are really making use of this airtime. You're talking fast. You're full of excitement. You've got a shit ton of information to relay. <laughs> this has been drinking through a fire hose listening to you. When are you going to just put on your own clinic in school? <laughs> oh, I'm, I doubt that I am. I just love to share it with other young people. You know, every, oh. any young guy trying to, or gal or whatever pronoun they want to use, I, I am here to help. <laughs> <laughs> any pronoun. <laughs> um, 
No, I think you could transcribe this episode and just produce a book. (laughs) Use this as your basis, man. This is drinking through a fire hose. Sure. I don't even know where to take it from here, Sage. Let's talk about land and land values. What do you, we, I can't really say ethically that land always goes up. Sure. But you, we do investing assuming that it will. Yes, sir. Uh, where you are trying to build your operation, you have some land right now to sell, uh, you're potentially looking to buy, you want to build your equity, you want to build your static component of your operation where you have a fixed land base. What do you need? What, what's working for you? What isn't working for you in the land markets? Awesome. Well, I come from it pretty conventionally. And so I often do the productive value of the land. And obviously the old rule of thumb was $10,000 per AU, right? Is that a, and and they just don't That is an old rule. Yeah, Yeah, that's (laughs) pretty dated. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they don't, they they might exist on federal land ranches, I think fairly commonly in in Nevada and Utah and stuff, but they don't exist here. And that's- That's valuing a lease. Valuing, yeah. yeah. Federal- yeah, Forester's BLM lease. So the the market is well beyond that. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people are like you, Sage, that they're going to say, I'm looking at this ranch uh, based on a $10,000 animal unit, which is, what is that? That would be a payback period of 10 years on a calf crop. Still doesn't cash flow. Yeah. No. Yep. So they got their payback period based on the value of a cow, let's say a $2,000 cow. You've got a profit margin of $500 per head on the calf. Nobody's looking at it like that anymore. Right. So how do you how do you deal with that? Right. Well, there's a few different ways we've tried to go after it. First of all, it was drilled into my head that land is awesome. I have a landlord who's an awesome land investor. And he would tell you, put every dime you have in land. And I think he's right. He is so right that that will reward you. But the thing that a guy can hang himself with is cutting your cash flow. And you'll literally be out of business. You might still have this piece of land, but you're out of business a few years later. Because, you know, roughly in rough terms, like the one place that we purchased contract for deed, because no lender would go with us on it. I mean, obviously, um, the that property cash flowed one year and four. It made its payment, you know, and that was a stellar production, stellar grass production year. And that's about the frequency of those stellar years, you know, too. So I think it'd be fair to say one year and four, one year and five, it might cash flow off the production. Um, and we were definitely banking on the appreciation. The other key component was keeping that a small enough part of our overall gross revenue that we were able to somewhat unfairly subsidize that with other money. So we made dang sure, and it was tight. I got to be honest. Every It feels like Alan Nation said that, that trying to buy land before you're ready, essentially, was like trying to swim the Mississippi with an anvil tied around your neck. You know, you might get there if you're really smart and good and you learn how to swim real fast, but it isn't going to be any fun. <laughs> and and that's the whole deal. Like you've been talking a lot about your family and I've been talking about my family and sharing that. And I think that's so important to for, focus on your family life. 
the the model of buying the ranch, buying the cows, and this being pretty sweet is dead and gone, and is probably not going to be brought back up. So we need to just move past that in our mind, get over that quick, and go on. For us, we can subsidize a land purchase, and I think this would be true for a lot of people after we've built, you know, a, a few hundred thousand dollars in equity. Where, where suddenly you've got a little bit of room to play. And if you've got enough cash flow produced by your other, your other enterprises, you know, and maybe you've started to delve into land ownership or to livestock ownership. I don't think that they, they, I think they could be exclusive. I don't think, I think you could skip from custom grazing and set aside enough money if you're doing it right to invest in land. That's fine. But I think that livestock are kind of the natural fit in the middle there. Um, once you get really good at custom grazing, you can buy livestock and then that money will will probably build you some equity and you can put that into land. You have to be willing to sell the livestock. We're really bad at that in, in, live, in the whole industry. We don't like, we like our critters and we don't like selling them. And that's, that's a travesty. We, if we're better at marketing, you're better than 90% of the industry with livestock. But back to land, the values that we've found have been in, unfortunately, like the non-live water places, the places that are really closely, they're close to being valued on their productive value. They're still not meeting that 10,000, but they're closer. And then we were, um, it's all about a relationship. We made it really positive on a contract for deed deal for the landowner so that there was no way this was going to be a bad deal for them. In fact, we made it so that until we were five years in with five payments, we didn't really get any true equity. So if we failed to make a payment after on years one, two, three, four, they just keep the whole value and walk away. So they gain all the appreciation for that time frame. We we made it so that after the fifth year on our contract for deed, we do get some equity, and that then you start moving in the right direction, you know. And I think that's a chance that I would like to see more. Landowners who want to see their land, especially this, who want to see their land held in ag and they don't want to do an easement, I think that that's a great option to find some young guy and help them along. And 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 like it or not, if that doesn't happen, you can't you can't talk out of one side of your mouth and say I'm against land consolidation and not be willing to do those sort of things for the young guy. That they're mutually exclusive. You have to you have to do something for somebody. But I will stress, value in land is real. Um, we have we have made at least half of our equity increases over the past nine years um, in land. I mean, that's been the bulk of it, and it's been wildly overpriced when we got into the land. And that's the same story. Everybody I know who's been a land investor will tell you, oh no, there's nothing that cash flows, but you'll be grateful about five years in. And that's been definitely true for us. Um, and so I think you find the best, I mean, I don't know, I, I definitely stoop to your knowledge on this, but I would say you find the best deal you can, you get in it, you dig in. It'd be nice if you went into it with a, enough cash that you can make that first couple payments, that would be a lot wiser <laughs> than being 100% equity. I And I think the appreciation will catch you up. And if you're willing to use that leverage, you can't lock up. You, you can't say, oh, that, you know, pretend like that leverage is not there. In three or four years, you've got to be willing to reappraise that thing, in my opinion, and use that leverage to continue to build in your thing. Uh, if you lock up at any point, it's not going to work. So I think you buy land to hold, but then you'd be willing to move it or do something with it, you know. And now we hope to own our home. We don't own our home um, right now. 
Uh, we love where we live and we love our landlord on that ranch. If we are able to purchase that, that'd be great. If we're not able to purchase that, that's okay. Some it's in our family mission to own our home, you know, and that's different. I think, I, I think, and, and for us, our home is probably a ranch, like, right. I mean, I don't think my home is a backyard in Billings here. I think of my home as being at least where I can't see anybody else, you know, so so that would be different. We would still buy it with the same principles. We'd be willing to pay a little more for the right spot we want to live for the rest of our life. So what I hear is that, and I hear this time and time again, whether guys bought land in the 70s, 60s, 50s, today, is it always seems overpriced on the purchase. But like in your case, Sage, 10 years later, you're like, yeah, oh, that's a pretty good decision. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020 with land. And what I also hear from you is you uh, you keep a pretty strict separation, trying to make your enterprises stand on their own and be self-sustaining, self-supporting. The land maybe being a minor exception there uh, that you do subsidize it with other income or the down payment has to come from somewhere else. You, you're not just going to step into a ranch and put 10% down and be able to cash flow the 90% balance. So it sounds to me like whether you were a dentist or a contractor or a nurse, you have this other income that's making the payment. And in your case, this other income is just happening to be on the ranch that you're making a payment on. Yep. So yep. people people have got to realize that, as you said, the days of the $10,000 animal unit valuation are gone. And... Uh, being able to cash flow something, principal and interest with 100% financing, that'll never happen. Um, what else? What else are some legends that need to die that people, these these flawed perspectives about land valuation and land ownership? You know, I'm going to challenge one that gets called out. Uh, ranching for profit has been identified as telling people to lease everything. I think that's misconstrued. They're not against you owning land. They just want you to have that separation. So, so that's one that would be common. I mean, Dave is a good friend and he would be like almost synonymous with, oh, well, don't buy a ranch. You know, that's not ever been Dave's intention to tell people, but he's working with a lot of people who already own a ranch. They don't even know. It's just all mixed up together. The separation is really important. So, so I think. You have you can own a ranch if you're a young person and you're hearing this. You can own it later. Like don't worry about owning it right now. You know. So, uh, but if you're willing to subsidize it with an off farm job, I think that can really help. Great. Make, go ahead and use all of that off farm job and make your land payment. I don't know why you wouldn't. You know, that's fantastic. So, in in this day and age, that's probably the best way to go because your off farm job is going to provide health insurance. Sure, that's a big deal. And four hundred one k match. So, there are other reasons to keep that off farm job other than just cash flowing your ranch, your your yep. passion, your hobby, your dream. Um, I would say for the people who tuned in to hear how you started with nothing you started with an application for a 10 million dollar loan is where you, <laughs> really where you started with with 2600 dollars of collateral i still can't get one <laughs> <laughs> but uh these these people who say it don't pencil yeah. and they just you can tell that i lose sleep over this they get under my skin 
there's actually places still in the US that do pencil. You just have to do something different like Sage asking here. You have to sharply look at your numbers, but there are ways to make it work. And one of those ways is you, well, you talked about the land you have bought. Yes. Was quote unquote, air quotes for those listening, uh, as closely valued to production as possible, which when I heard that, I interpreted that as it's highly undesirable. Yeah. Well, or in the moment it was. It was a sweet spot in the land market, you know. Well, the general masses didn't want it. Right. It's high, dry, sagebrush, wide open, far from utilities, far from town. It's windy. You said there's wind turbines out there. So it's it's a generally highly undesirable area, which bears in mind a yogiism, Yogi Berra, hit it where they ain't. Yeah. And you have to do that. If you want to own dirt, uh, don't go for the riverfront uh, close to town with utilities, sewage, uh, close to Jackson Hole. Yeah, there's there's a lot of other people who want that uh, riverfront property and they have a lot more money than you. So hit it where they ain't. And one of those places where it ain't is northern Michigan. Oh, I've, sure. I've ran some numbers that you can buy ground in northern Michigan sell the timber off of it, get your basis out of it, and then you're ranching for free at, at that awesome. point. What, and uh, the Northeast, these, I know these, a guy who did that in uh, Maine. Yeah, and Maine would be another great Old place. farmed out dairy farms. <clears throat> and here a couple of years ago when the dairy was in a crisis and they are super volatile. When they get in crisis, they just, they just die. There's nothing left. And they put two together and got a really nice sheep ranch together, you know, in like seven, 800 acres. Well, that's a, like the largest one in the county up there. Absolutely. Awesome. Look for opportunities like that. And for these these cowboys who think that they're entitled to riding the range and having a horse and putting on spurs, wearing the spurs to town, going to the bar and drinking whiskey, there's such a sense of entitlement that, by God, I'm going to be a cowboy in Montana. Well, are you going to be a profitable rancher or do you just want to play dress up all day long? Totally. Because if you want to be a profitable rancher, uh, take the boots off the jingle bobs, <laughs> get your saw out and go to Michigan. Cause you can actually make that work. No one, no one tells you that you are entitled to making a ranch work in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely the mountain West is, I think that's probably true of the mountain. I think Montana is probably the pinnacle of it with Wyoming, Idaho, right behind Absolutely. You know, Colorado, Utah, yep. all of it. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're going to live here, then make sure you know why and go with that, you know. But I, I, you know, something that comes into mind and you could beat this up if you think it's wrong. I think it's very likely, for one, there's no federal lands back east, so to speak. God bless the, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's very likely you can have a 100% owned thing in 10 years as a young person in the eastern United States. I think that that's very almost impossible in the western United States. Period. Agreed. Yeah. Strongly agreed. And I mean, look at the U.S. migration movements. People are leaving Michigan, Minnesota, Maine. They're moving to the Sun Belt. Sure. So those real estate values will not be appreciating as quickly as very nice areas like Colorado Springs. Yep. That That is just a neat climate. That's a beautiful region. Uh, I mean, if you want to be in Sun Valley, Idaho, Gallatin Valley, Montana. So do a lot of other people. So sure. why not look to somewhere that is
potentially going to experience stagflation. You and I were talking about stagflation earlier at lunch today. If you were wanting to build equity, have a ranch, put together your cow herd, uh, great way to raise a family. And I know the reason you choose to what I called toil sure. earlier, you yep. choose to toil in Wyoming is because this is where you want your family to be. Yep. But if you wanted to create a pretty, pretty dang good nest egg, yep. look for that liquidated dairy in Maine. Right. Look for that, uh, that former timber investment in Northern Michigan. Totally. And then, then match your animal to your climate. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, I thought of another thing, my same landlord, mm-hmm who's just literally a genius, world-class genius on buying real, ranch real estate. One of the things he always says is there's always an underlying value and be willing to capitalize on that quickly or concessionalize it quickly. And and that, I've even been guilty of that. I've towed around and thought of developing like the hunting rights or whatever, and then been moderately you know, successful at that, to be honest, Coulter. And, but he is adamant about developing something and he'll often tell you, he doesn't know what it's going to be. It could be a pipeline easement. It could be, he, he says it's going to be something. So, so he's willing to go into a deal, I think, and, and get it, knowing the appreciation is going to be there and he can stomach that. But for cash flow, I, I would assume he would be willing to develop something fairly quickly. So he goes to work when he owns one and he's just a genius. And that's something that a lot of people aren't willing to do that that's pulling a value out of that land to an extent um but you know what he's buying a lot of land and he's very successful at it and that, and a lot of ranchers are the ones that are guilty like you said the the cowboy mentality the old school deal we'll control this we'll never sell off an acre of the land the air the minerals the anything we're this is undisturbed that's fine in the in the 100 year time span but it's not practical it's not going to get you in that land unless you're completely non-leveraged on it and how could that be you know and i can i can empathize with the inability or the unwant of concessionizing some of these amenities some of these attributes like probably the biggest opportunity a ranch has is to concessionize tourism and hunting sure that in the long run that would pay way better than livestock on damn near every ranch in the west however People like me don't want to take in tourists and exactly. become become a, a host, a guide, an outfitter, customer service. We're just not good at that. Yep. Maybe it's our face. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th- there are aspects that there's no feasibility. So right. the opportunity is there, but the feasibility is not totally. There. And that's a lifestyle deal. And, and that, that's why you got to have a wife that. She's going to run the tourism business. <laughs> We've actually talked about that. We talked about some yurts or something and we haven't done it, you know, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I would say that the regenerative agriculture, the reason to increase your grazing management, that that does give you an edge. I am not going to go so far as to say that I'm willing to stake my flag and say that in the Western United States, you're going to buy your ranch because you're going to increase your stocking rate by X number. I don't think that's wise to do that, but I am going to say it's a possibility and, and it'll sure help. And I think increasing, improving your water, improving your fences and, and improving your ability to graze that at a higher level will deal with your highest. The main thing we're dealing with is stocking rate. And, and that had certainly helped us on our ranch there. I think we got 
I think we probably did get close to double out of it that anybody thought we would. And it looks great, you know. And well, so, and concessionizing these other amenities right. and attributes, we talked about tourism, hunting. Earlier, you tried the direct-to-consumer yeah. uh, meat marketing. I don't know if it was your sheep, goats, beef, whatever it was. That that didn't work for you um, because you are an expert at grazing. You're an expert at natural resource management. Your thesis is about taking a thousand, just for example, a thousand AUM place and being able to consistently through droughts, through uh, thick and thin grasshoppers, consistently get 1,200, 1,500 AUMs out of the place that you are contractually obligated to pay for a thousand or that you have valued at a thousand. So you're an expert. Your your stick is the grazing. And I, sure. I get it that people like me just wouldn't enjoy. We don't market very well for uh, tourism. Leave that to the Paws Up Ranch in Ovando, Montana. Like, that's not our deal. Our deal is we're good at grass. We're good at cows. We're good at soil. We're good at water. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's something to that, right? Isn't that a... Maybe Tim Ferriss and many others have honed in on, again, play to your strengths. Do Stick what you're to your good guns. at. Absolutely. And, and for each person, it's it's different. I, I'm pretty convinced that, so I'm not a farmer. I know nothing about it. I can't do it. I'm bad at it. That's the fact. And I'm willing to recognize that. So we just don't do that. But can, but far be it from me to say that somebody who has a passion for row crop probably can't roll in and do amazing things if they're really good with the, at the dry land farming in in western montana it's just not my thing and i think it's very common for those people to not be good at livestock you know and so it, it might be great things i think the value of mentorship we haven't really talked about today but it is i think that's one thing we've lacked it's allowed me i think a good mentor will allow you to get your you know your fingers burned but they won't let you lose your arm you know but you've got to get your fingers burned Sometimes families are too protective of their kids and they won't let them even get their fingers burned. And so they never learn how to manage. And so a good mentor will let you get your fingers burned, let you get into it, but he takes a he takes a zero off your loan. You know, he makes sure you don't risk the whole biscuit, you know, and and uh, that's one thing we haven't talked about today. But if you can find an older rancher, the, can you imagine you are very aware? Has there ever been a greater opportunity in land transitioning period as is going to happen in the next few years? No, we're right in the middle of it. Yeah, it's it's started. It's probably as far as opportunity to have a mentor or opportunity to take part in this mass transition of land ownership. Yeah, we're right on the front end of it. It's happening and it's only going to get thicker for the quote unquote young guys who are looking to get in, but they have to come in with realistic expectations too. Totally. This whole idea of zero down contract for deed. I know that you were able to work it in your own way, but you took a lot of at bats. Totally. I mean, you had to make a lot of swings and maybe that this feels like a home run for you, but for most people, it's probably going to be singles and doubles. Yep. To use stupid sports analogies. Yeah, I'm bad at those. <laughs> no, I agree. And and I would also say that could be reflected from the landowner's perspective for a young person. I would encourage some sort of a staggered lease or we like a, we like a rolling lease. Um, a rolling lease is you've got to have time ahead of you. And, and I think it 
in an un, like with strangers, right? It's hard to say, well, I'm going to lock my place down for a period of time to this person I don't even know. But the idea of a rolling lease is you can do it for three years, I think minimum. And, and then that young person has some time to get invested there. After a year, you probably know which way you're going to go. And at the end of that, a rolling lease is structured that you just add another year to the end of the lease, you know? So you're always at, at the minimum 24 months ahead of yourself. And at the maximum, you're 36 months ahead of yourself. And you know your trajectory on that ranch. And, that, and having two years out ahead of you allows you a ton of ability to finance, to move, to shape. You can do anything in two years, you know? And so, um, and then lease valuation. I think that just because they public it, they publish it in the national ag statistics, just because your neighbor says what they're getting, just because everybody knows what something was leasing for, I would like to see a little pullback for that if you want your land to someday go to a young family like us or like yourself or like somebody else. I would encourage landowners who are family ranchers who want their land to stay as family ranchers. You're going to have, I, I don't think you have to be wildly out of expectations. I think 85, 90% of market, that would be totally fair. And I would encourage you to do some sort of a staggered lease. So if it's a, maybe, maybe at the end of a three-year rolling lease by that third year into that, you're, you're actually at full market value, but start out at 75% of value. I'll promise you the first year on a new lease never goes that well. If we can break even the first year, we're really happy. Um, if you're going to incentivize development of the land, of anything like that, you have to have the long-term horizon and you have to incentivize it at the front end so that they can afford to do some capital improvement. Um, we also like for the tenant to be have a floor and a ceiling called lease money satisfied. Um, for their capital budget. Um, if it And I range that from 5% to 15% of the lease value and you front that as a tenant. And so now you get permission like, hey Coulter, on your land that I'm leasing from you, I'd like to put in this water project that's gonna cost 52,000. That's gonna eat my CapEx budget for this year and 10% of next year's. Are you cool with that? And and you can you can decline it, but you better have a pretty good reason the way we would we would build the lease, you know. And that allows the tenant to immediately get bought in there. And that's the whole deal. If they're bought in there and they're invested, well, then you're gonna get that back. It becomes yours once it's sunk in the land, you know. So incentivize the long-term connection to it. Let's stay on this because this is excellent. Um you you approach this from the good old boy populist generational farmer which i don't give a shit about anymore i'm so <laughs> burned on this we need to encourage the next generation coming up we have too much land going to bill gates and corporate ownership uh we we've got to fight for the uh the down home the family farmer let's start another granger movement let's get the farmers unions back up and going like i'm over it uh let's let's capitalism is telling us where we're going sure uh the free markets are leading us by the ear oh yeah of where we're going and i'm okay with that um i don't know what 200 years from now looks like i'm not going to be around but i think as long as we uh stay in a free market economy as long as we let capitalism prevail it'll only get better sure and yeah it's scary it's it's painful that we have this huge transition right now that family farms are decreasing the average farm is getting bigger uh there's fewer fewer participants coming back into farming we're losing a lot of generational knowledge 
we're losing generational skill set. Yeah, that's tough, but the free market will find a way. Capitalism will find a way. So let's talk about leases. You approached it from this, um, let's keep good old boys on the land perspective. Yep. I'm approaching it from, we have a rich family in Greenwich, Connecticut, right. who has never even been to the ranch, but it looks cool in their portfolio. Uh, let's talk about these leases because I'm with you. I I want to encourage long-term relationships. You cannot manage a natural resource year to year. Mm-hmm. That just sends the resource backwards. So you've got to have a structure that is long-term. Uh, both parties have an alignment of interest and there's vesting. And it doesn't have to be vesting that I get to buy your place or I'm building equity. It's ve- It could be vesting like as you mentioned, a discounted lease, but hey, I have improved your asset. Uh, I've improved the market value. I've improved the operating efficiency. I've improved the annual yield of your asset. Uh, it was my money. And let's start with water. You always start with water, right? Sure. And then let's talk about fences. And that that actually, as a landowner from Greenwich, Connecticut, who's never been there but likes to brag about their ESG portfolio. Right. They get their claws in that guy. Yeah. They've got him. They've they've got a guy that they can trust and rely on who's on their side. Yep. It's a partner, and it should be viewed as a partnership and a marriage, and you treat your spouse with respect and appreciation. 100%. Yeah, and, and, and ideally, as a tenant, we would actually come to you and say, hey, things have changed. We need to revalue this up. I mean, do you ever hear of that? That would be a good... That My wife says that thing. all the time in our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I love the, so that, that's, that's the two different dichotomies of landowners, probably, you know, the, the out-of-state investor. I'm, I'm with you. I think as tenants, anybody looking at running a ranch has to be at least willing to deal with that. It's the worst thing. It's probably the worst thing about rural conservative America is our uh, definitely is our closed mindedness towards new things towards change and and it's often by ostracizing the new people that's terrible that's terrible i want i have been the new person and been ostracized you know and it's a terrible feeling and i think it's much healthier to embrace it i mean it's some sort of a change guess who's guess who's going to lease their ranch to you it's the well, the one person who came and was friendly, you know, and so on and so forth. And as far as the morals and stuff, they don't change a lot. I mean, yeah, we're a fence, fence out state in Wyoming. I don't, Montana, I'm sure has pretty shared values on that. Fence out. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We're fence out. Yeah. But except uh, where, for grazing districts. Where a lot of these people are, they might be from a fence in deal. It doesn't matter. Just keep your fence up. Be nice. You know, make it a moral thing. Don't make it a don't make it a sticking to the law. We're going to ostracize. This guy's good. You know, the attitude of, well, they'll just be broke. This will be for sale in five more years. <laughs> How many times have you heard that? You know, that's the worst. I, I hear it a- all the time and I've yet to see it. Yeah, me too. Those, <laughs> it turns out that guy actually just had 10 million. Yeah. He's 10 times. And all that was rooted in envy. You yeah, know, that absolutely. whole statement. So I don't know. I look to people who are successful, who are actually buying land as some sort of success. I agree with you. I think that the, the the land ownership, we have to break that in our mind. And I know I've probably expressed some inspiration here to people who want to own land. And that's great because I think that, but I think I need to emphasize it's a different business 
and it'll come later or it'll come at a different time. It could come first, but then you don't want to be operating it. You have your town job, you know? And so, so it's a dichotomy. Land ownership and land operations are two totally different things. And they're always going to be from what I can tell, unless we enter a depression. That's the only thing that would ever lead to that coming back from what I can tell from economics. So. And do you want to root for that? No, nobody should be rooting for <laughs> depression. I, I would I would certainly root for uh, good opportunities to buy land in the future. and Or a change of administration. You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll root for that all day. Yeah, I... I and by the by the way, as a as a caveat, when I said that, that was a downfall of conservative rule America, believe me, I want to live in conservative rule America because I'm a non people person who doesn't want to be around people. But it is good to uh, just be a little more welcoming. So maybe some co- social some social uh, liberalism would would benefit <clears throat> rule America. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, audience. What's your take? Uh, please feel free to comment on our social media posts and message. Now, don't message me directly on LinkedIn. But <laughs> uh, comment so everyone can see it. I prefer that as to uh, private messages. But Sage, are you on social media? Can people send you some hate or troll you? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I have a personal Facebook page. It's just Sage Askin. I think I'm the only one out there. So. Okay. So yeah, look up Askin Land and Livestock and Regen LLC. We've covered a lot and we probably haven't even scratched the surface of what goes on in this guy's mind. Be great to have you on again, Sage. Oh, thanks, Coulter. It's been just a sheer blessing and my whole mission in coming here was definitely to inspire just one other young person to give her a shot and don't quit. So don't quit. Well, thank you, Sage. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Be be sure to uh, send me some hate, some troll messages, whatever you want. Social media is the way to do that. And uh, feel free if you are a landowner who's, who's liked what you heard from Sage, not myself, to reach out to Sage and, uh, He's looking in Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, and Montana. Thank you so much. Say hi to your wife and kids. Thanks, Sage. Thank you. Subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.